Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the digital marketing podcast for tech marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. So before I start, as I told you in the last episode, I've published a guide to help you stand out as a marketer. It's a nine bullshit-free lessons from world-class tech marketers, including Seth Godin, Ron Fishkin, David Darmanin. So you can grab it on everyonehatesmarketers.com for free and also subscribe uh, to my weekly updates. Right, so this episode is quite different from many others. So instead of going through a step-by-step methodology like we've done with Rand Fishkin or Seth Godin, for example, we're going to talk about the future of Google, um, not what's happening in the next months or even the next few years, but we're rather trying to talk about what's going to happen in the next 10 years, 15 years or 20 years and the consequences for everybody worldwide and in, for marketers like you in particular. So my guest today is quite a character. His name is Barry Adams. He's an SEO consultant at Polemic Digital. Uh, he's a co-chief editor at State of Digital and speaker at various marketing and SEO events like Learn Inbound in Dublin, PubCon in Las Vegas, Brighton, and, uh, Brighton SEO in Brighton, obviously, and Search Leads, to name a few. So in this episode, both of us are going are gonna to try to go through what Google's future look like. And there's probably many things you didn't know about it and what's going to happen next. So it's rather bleak and kind of scary. And it means that the consequences for marketers all over the world could be tremendous. So we're going to ask tough questions such as how to actually deal with Google. Should we embrace it? Should we fight against it? So there's plenty of interesting questions there. And as usual, Barry is going to share resources that you should check out today or read. So it's a very interesting episode that will make you think a lot about what the future of internet looks like. So as usual, have a listen and let me know what you think. Barry, I know you for a while now. The first time I heard from you was at a digital marketing conference in Dublin a few years ago. And I was surprised by the fact that I remember vividly you were the only guest speaker who actually seemed to be honest and seemed to be like speaking his mind without fearing any consequences. And I remembered you from there. And then I followed you on Twitter and here we are today. So before going into the who are you a little bit more and what you do, there is one company that you hate and you dislike above all of them, right? Don't say, don't say the word just yet. This company generated $90 billion in revenue last year in 2016 mostly from advertising. It has colonized more countries than the ancient Romans. And you describe it as a beast with a ferocious appetite that will kill any industry, right? So there's no love lost between you and them. And obviously I'm talking about... Google, obviously, the bane of my existence, but also the company that enables me to make money. So I'm, I'm, I have this public persona of being a Google basher, but that I'm also a bit grateful to an extent because they enable me to make a living doing search engine optimization and helping websites become successful through Google, uh, primarily the organic results because I don't like giving money to Google. I don't necessarily have a beef with Google as much as I have a beef with the public image that Google throws out there because when they first arrived on the scene, they were described as sort of a good guy company with this don't be evil informal mantra um, and just trying to do things slightly differently sort of the anti microsoft of the day because microsoft was always seen as this big behemoth of a company that just did whatever it needed to do to win and google started google's corporate culture sort of started as a polar opposite of microsoft's corporate culture much more laid back much more friendly much more uh, open inclusive much more transparent um, and ironically these last 10, 15 years, the rules have reversed. And now Google is becoming or has already become the bad guy in the story that just barrels over any competitor, takes over entire industries and leaves a wake of destruction behind without any real thought to the repercussions of what they're doing. Whereas Microsoft is trying to reposition itself a bit more as a, a friendly giant that just uh, ticks along nicely, tries to help its users, it finally has an operating system that's pretty decent and uh, seems to have moved away from being a general dick in the marketplace. 
But do you think that you mentioned in the start that you're making money thanks to them and, and you have to be grateful. Do you think you're making money thanks to them or do you make money because of them in a sense? Maybe I make money despite of them because if it wasn't Google, there would have been other search engines. I mean, I started doing SEO as a hobby for my own websites when Google was just a twinkle in the eye of Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Uh, and then this stuff was easy, you know, you put white text and white background and you, you stuff the keywords, meta tag, and there you went. But actually, Google sort of forced the entire search industry to clean up and, and strive to be better because the early generation search engines were terrible, absolutely terrible. But then the web wasn't that big at that stage, so they could afford to be terrible. Google really pushed the envelope, but if it wasn't Google, someone else would have done it, you know? N none of the technologies that Google uses are particularly new or innovative because we tend to forget that a company like Yandex in Russia started at around the same time using a very similar approach to indexing and ranking web pages that Google had. So Google just managed to get there first in the Western world uh, combined with their good guy image, their, their happy persona of, of a lovable company and managed to snatch up 90-95% market share in most of Western Europe. And I think that is what annoys me the most. They are basically a default monopoly in most countries that I work in, and they have certain responsibilities that they just don't acknowledge as a monopoly. You know, when they decide, for example, to go into uh, what, what I saw the other day was uh, job listings, where they show job listings directly in search results that they scrape from other websites. Google is very good at this. They take over a certain information niche and just keep the audience for themselves. So a jobs website can build up a lot of jobs and a lot of reputation over a long period of time and puts a lot of effort into making a great website. Then Google comes along, calls that information, scrapes it basically, and presents it in their own search results, allowing them to monetize it and not sending any traffic or sending minimal traffic back to the job site. And they've done this before with local websites, with, with movie websites, with all kinds of different uh, information uh, niches and, and e-commerce niches. They've even tried it with insurance comparisons and, and finance comparison. They're just trying to make more money, you know. Google stopped being a good guy company in 2004 when they went public and then had a legal obligation to maximize profits. And that's what they're doing right now. So I don't really blame Google to that extent. I just blame the rest of the world for not treating Google like the, the money-hungry shit monsters that they've become. But what should we do uh, as, as, as people? Like, how can we blame, how can we blame ourselves for, for a company that we don't have any choice but using them most of the time, right? Exactly. I mean, you can try using Bing, but no, no harm to Microsoft. It's a terrible search engine. The thing is, when in, in previous decades, when certain companies have taken over a specific niche to an extent where they become a default monopoly, the same thing happens. That is, a nationwide regulator steps in and regulates the industry, sometimes even breaks up the company. It's what happened to AT&T, it's what happened to IBM, it's what happened to Microsoft to an extent in the late 1990s, where they got a real shit ton of of uh, legislation against them in both America and the European Union. And right now in America, Google is just being let off the hook. Google arguably has more power and abuses more power than Microsoft ever had at their heyday, but they get away with it because they spend more money on lobbying than most arms manufacturers. I think now they are Washington's first or second largest lobbying company. And in the European Union, fortunately, we seem to have a little bit more sense about that, but because the Americans aren't cooperating, they're just letting Google off the hook. The Europeans have to fight the battle on their own. Um, and because Google is still an American company, that's going to be a very tough fight. And there's a lot of uh, propaganda put out there to help defend Google's practices and, you know, under the banner of Silicon Valley innovation. Google hasn't really innovated in 10, 15 years. They just buy companies that innovate because they are so big and so powerful. You know, it's just the standard defense of, yeah, another company can come in and be better at it than Google, and then they'll win and become the new Google. That's just not true anymore. Google has become so big, such a huge critical mass that they've achieved. They will just buy out competitors, or if they can't buy them, make life impossible for those competitors so that they just die out. And there needs to be a higher level intervention to prevent that from happening, be that in the form of a regulator on a nationwide level or a continental level, or be that by a mass movement of consumers. Now, the latter is very improbable because, like I said, consumers have this image of Google as the good guy company. I mean, the, the, the verb for searching stuff online has the fucking name on it, right? Now, 
I'm hoping that it'll follow in the same vein as what happened to companies like Hoover, uh, where the, the verb becomes uh, the brand name becomes the verb, and then the company sort of disappears from people's radar. But I don't see that happening with Google because they are such a huge dominant presence on the web, and it's not just search engines. I mean, they are in essence an advertising company now that is is data mining its users. They they were people farm. We as people are their cattle, and we're being farmed. Our data is being farmed and sold to advertisers. They are so prevalent in every aspect of the internet. It's very hard to imagine a web where Google doesn't exist or has a much more diminished power. I think at some stage, some regulator is going to have to put on some severe steel testicles, uh, pardon the uh, implicit sexism there, and uh, just say, right, we need to break Google up because they have too much power. Maybe the search arm needs to be separated from uh, the advertising arm, and maybe even the advertising arm needs to be split up into different advertising businesses because they have too much power over the whole web. And then when you go down that route, you start have to look at companies like Facebook as well, who have almost as much power, and Amazon, uh, you know, who are also pervasive in people's online presence, and Apple, which, you know, despite the fact that uh, iPhone is not selling as well as Android, Apple is still a hugely dominant player in the mobile market. So if you combine the advertising revenue uh, from Facebook and Google, it's the market share is more than 99% uh, as of you know uh, the date we are recording, which is uh, which is May 2017. So it's unreal to think about that, especially because 15 years ago, if I'm not mistaken, those two companies were not alive, uh, were not were not born, right? So they took 99% of the online advertising revenue market share in less than 15 years, which is fucking crazy. Um, so before going into a little bit more details on how we can, as digital marketers, kind of embrace that and fight against Google or find ways to, to at least, you know, live with it. I just want to go back to you a little bit. Um, so you, as you mentioned before, you started SEO the year when France were, uh, won the Football World Cup, which is, <laughs> yeah. which is a long time ago. <laughs> oh, I still remember that. Oh, me too. I mean, it is my first memory as a child, as Home a teenager. Home you know, that's, that's wonders. Yeah, yeah, and they got poisoned, and, and Brazilians got poisoned, and all of that. <laughs> Come on, let, let us win for once, fuck's sake. Um, right, so you're the founder of Polemic Digital uh, for the last three years, and you've been a regular speaker at PubCon, Brighton SEO, you've been a lecturer uh, at the Digital Marketing Institute and Queen's University in Belfast, and also the editor of the State of, of, of Digital. So you have plenty of experience there. And I'm curious to know what, if you had to select one thing outside maybe of Google that we just mentioned, if you had to select one thing that really annoys you in digital marketing nowadays, what would it be? I think it's what annoyed me all about digital marketing since the beginning. It's this chasing after hypes. You know, uh, one day it's inbound marketing, the next day it's, it's growth hacking, then it's uh, influencer marketing. Um, it's just a load of bullshit, as you know. That's why you invented the podcast in the first place. It's just people chasing after quick wins, and there are no quick wins. You know, the the golden age of becoming an internet millionaire have come and gone. If if you didn't launch your business in the year 2000, you would just forget about it. It's it's over. It's now hard graft. It's knowing what to do and doing it well over a long period of time. There are no more easy solutions. But we as a, a fickle species and always chasing after uh, the latest and greatest. We want that silver bullet. We want that magic formula, that unicorn dust that we can sprinkle over our website, get a million visitors a day and become millionaires and retire to the Bahamas. Um, because that's what we see other people doing, not realizing that, no, that's not what other people are doing. Those are people either who was born with a lot of wealth or got really fucking lucky winning the lottery, the one in a hundred million chance uh, to, to make a fortune online. Nearly every one of us just grinds along as we do and we have to do it the hard way by doing good things over a long period of time um so that that probably annoys me the most you know that people just keep chasing after these hypes and don't learn from their mistakes that oh yeah no it's this thing next and if you do that you're going to become hugely successful oh no wait it's this other thing if you do next and then you're going to be hugely successful uh, wake the fuck up people it's just good hard graft it's not nothing particularly magic about it just doing the right things over a long period of time yeah, I, I, I don't know if I can say anything more than that. That's, that's well summarized. And there's another thing that, you, that I heard you speaking about a few times, uh, about websites in particular. Um, 
You have a strong point of view about websites nowadays and those digital marketing agencies building those fancy unicorn type websites. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's, I, I get this from multiple perspectives, but I'll start with what my ideal scenario is, because for me, a website ticks three main boxes. The first thing is that it has to look good because there are certain aspects of trust and authority inherent in a good web design. It needs to look professional. It needs to have aesthetically pleasing design elements so that people enjoy engaging with the website or at least aren't turned off by the design of the website. It also needs to be functional. I probably should have put that first. You know, a website needs to achieve its purpose. If it's an e-commerce website, people need to be able to buy products, add them to cart and check out with little hassle as possible. If it's a lead gen website, people need to be able to find the information and fill in the form as quickly as possible. So it needs to be functional. That is where most web agencies actually stop. But for me, the third part is just as important as the other two, and that is the performance aspect of it. The website needs to be able to perform, and by that I mean it needs to be able to get an audience. Because a website without an audience is just a car sitting in a garage somewhere. It's, it's, it might look pretty, but you're not going to do anything with it. It's not going to achieve anything. Uh, and that is where I find too many problems in websites being launched by web agencies that really ought to know better. You know, a functional and beautiful website is not the finished product. That is just the start of the journey. The website then needs to be able to get an audience. And that means there needs to be all kinds of elements into that website that enable it to get traffic from search engines, either paid or organic, that needed to be integrated into social media platforms uh, for content promotion, that need to be able to build landing pages, integrate with email marketing efforts, you name it. Those things need to be in there, otherwise it is not a website, it's a showpiece. And that is what my main gripe is. Now, on the other hand, I understand it from the perspective of the web agencies, because I used to be that digital director on the other end, uh, 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 trying to keep uh, an entire army of web developers employed because the client doesn't always see the need for that because that sort of performance element stuff is what's under the hood. That's not always directly visible to the client and therefore they don't necessarily want to pay for it. Now you can use that as sort of a uh, USB as a web agency that you know this stuff comes in by default. We do that as standard but it also means you tend to be more expensive than your competitors. And too many clients make those decisions on which agency to go for based mostly on price rather than on the quality of the output. So I fully understand the conundrum that web agencies have. What really fucking pisses me off is when I start having these conversations with my clients' web agencies and they don't even acknowledge the fact that these performance elements are missing. In fact, they don't even realize that it's an issue in the first place. That's where my patience just runs out. I can fully work with an agency that has acknowledged that the performance elements might not be present because of whatever budgetary reasons or functional reasons, as long as they realize that some stuff has been left out for whatever reason. Agencies then don't even realize that that's a problem. I have no patience for those anymore. And in fact, I want them to go and die and disappear because they are just churning out shit websites that uh, you know, clients believe will make them really rich or make their business successful, but end up not accomplishing anything, which then in turn disillusions the client about what the internet and the web can achieve for them. And you create this vicious circle of disappointment and negative attitudes, and then people willing to spend less and less money on it. And we should be doing the exact opposite, creating a positive ecosystem that reinforces the ideas that the internet can really achieve great things for a business through excellent web experiences that drive traffic and help businesses grow. From my small experience as a, as a consultant, what I found to be the toughest thing, actually, from, from an agency point of view or the consulting point of view, is that your client will ask you things Right, so they will ask you, I, I want this brand, this shiny website with the slider on the homepage, and I, I want that and that, and I want this huge pop-up coming up straight away, and we want that, so you have to deliver, or else we bring the money elsewhere. And it's obvious from an agent, agency point of view that needs money that you are like, well, actually, we can do that. It's okay, you know, we can develop that or design that. It's actually easy to do. Is it the right thing? No. But what happens is that most of the time. We don't say no because we just are way too happy to take the work. And this is what I was trying to fight against as a consultant, where we were questioning every single choice, going back to the customer and asking them, what do you actually want? What, what type of things are you looking for? 
A-B testing and user testing things before putting live, but that that generates an awful amount of of work, like extra work. It's much more difficult to do than just saying yes to everything. So I think that if I have to choose one core reason of why this is happening, why so many agencies are building bad websites, I would choose this one. Yes, I, I agree with you. It's sometimes not worth fighting those battles because you have to keep an agency running. You have to get to work in. And if you keep saying no, the client is going to go to a web agency that just says yes. And that's how we end up on all these shit websites. <laughs> so there isn't really an easy solution to that problem. You know, It's just a, a slow, steady maturation of the industry where hopefully people like myself and you will be griping about it so often in, in public forums that people will feel ashamed to build and launch websites like that and that they want to elevate their own profession to a higher level. I mean, I know some web developers, some of them are really good friends of mine who are at that level. And to work with those people is an absolute delight because it's a fantastic two-way street where I come up with a, a suggestion for improvement and they come back with a more elegant solution that addresses the core problem better than I could ever think of, you know? Because those people really understand the need for high-performing websites and will do their best to make it happen. And generally, I see clients who have their own in-house development teams being more receptive to this because those in-house developers have a stake in making that website perform. Whereas agencies, they just want to get paid and move on to the next project because they literally cannot afford to overspend on every web project to make the client happy, to make angry SEOs like myself happy. You know, they just need to keep the work coming in because they've got salaries to pay. Whereas in-house developers, I think, uh, have more incentive to really try and dig the most out of an existing website and, um, you know, uh, try to get it to perform on optimal levels. And they want to learn as well. They want to see what they can do to make it better and understand what goes into that so that the next time they don't make those, those same mistakes. I want to move on to to the to the start of of like what we started to discuss at the start of, of the episode, which is about Google and how to deal with 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 this company. So I, I'm curious to know, first of all, where you think Google is going. So I'm not talking necessarily about version two or three of the AMP project, you know, accelerating mobile pages. I'm talking more in 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 general the big picture. If you had to to think about the next five or 10 years, where do you think Google is going to be in those times? Um, I think Google wants to become background noise to an extent. They will become an electricity supplier where you never want to switch away from again. Um, they, what you see already happening to an extent with uh, like uh, home assistant devices, um, like the Alexa and the Google Echo, and th uh, Amazon Echo and, and you know uh, all those different platforms, is that it becomes integrated in your daily life. Google wants to become that sort of ubiquitous search machine where you just interact with it in a very natural way without actually thinking about it. It's not about you know opening a browser on your mobile or on your desktop anymore and going to google.com or whatever. It's about just asking questions to the ether. And Google wants to become that default provider of that experience. Whether or not they'll succeed is a very different story, but that's where they want to go because that's where technology in general is headed. You know, if, if a company like Google can become such an integral part of your life that they literally, you literally cannot imagine it without the company, that's what they have won. You know, that's when they become a, a, a crucial utility. Um, so that is where the technology is headed. Google is trying its very best to position itself that way. I actually think they're probably behind on that a little bit because... A, there's some privacy concerns about uh, Google's home assistant, which haven't yet been fully addressed and which are turning some of the early adopters off and making them go to something like the Amazon Echo, which, um, you know, because Amazon isn't an advertising company, they're an e-commerce company. They have less incentive to mine your data and less incentive to uh, invade your privacy. And the same with Apple. Apple's a hardware company at its root, so you feel more confident talking to Siri, uh, realizing that you can opt out, any, out of any data mining. Uh, because, you know, Apple's core business model is not people farming, whereas Google's core business model is people farming. So Google wants to become that ubiquitous search provider. I'm not entirely sure they can be or if they do, they will face some really stiff opposition. Now, Google doesn't really shy away from that. So, you know, they have a pretty good shot at it. They've got some of the smartest minds in the, in the world working for them, which is one of the other aspects that depresses me about them. You know, literally the smartest people on the planet are working on finding ways to make people click more ads, and that just really fucks me off. Um, so that's what Google wants to be. That's where the technology in general has had it. Um, and I think that's the, the, the 
only real existential threat Google faces at the moment. If they can nail that, if they can push Amazon and Apple and Microsoft out of that space and become the dominant player there, then it's world domination 2.0 and we can all kiss our asses goodbye, really. <laughs> Pretty grim future uh, in front of us. So should we, should we, as digital marketers, should we fight Google? And, and if so, how? Or should we just obey by their rules and, and move along and... I think fighting is probably a bit futile. I'm more in the, I'd say it argue for education. Uh, most people sleepwalk into this dystopia not realizing what is actually happening. Because when you explain it to people, they, you see that where we come over their face and you see, holy crap, this is actually what's happening. But most people don't understand. They don't understand the technology. They don't understand the business model underlying uh, search engines like Google. They don't understand what Facebook is doing with all that data. They just want to share pretty photos of their dogs and uh, uh, you know sunlit beaches and how nice their their food looks on a plate and they'll take a show off to their friends that's what they want to do so i think education we as digital marketers have a certain responsibility to educate our clients and our friends and our relatives about this that yes okay these services are all great but if you're not paying for it you are the product you are the cow being milked here so have a bit of a think about that. What are you actually comfortable with? Uh, and some people will say, oh, they can have anything I want. But that too is a dangerous thread to work on because I'll give you an example. There's a lot of studies that show that when people realize they're being watched, they behave differently. Um, and the moment that people realize that everything they do online is being watched, everything they do online is being watched, they will behave differently. Um, that sort of pervasive surveillance, surveillance capitalism, as Avril Borgen calls it, is literally changing the way we behave, is hampering our freedoms in very uh, identifiable yet subtle ways. And we have to be careful that we just go along with that tide that technology is bringing us without stopping and taking stock and thinking, hey, hang on a second here, is this really what we want to be doing? Do we want to create this commercial surveillance apparatus that governments and companies can tap into to harvest our data and do whatever the hell they want with, even manipulate us to a large extent? You saw that with recent stories about election manipulation by uh, you know, companies like Cambridge and Analytica and uh, those sorts of businesses where you know there's been strong evidence that there were some percentage point swings in, for example, the Brexit vote or the Trump election as a result of those companies using data mining and behavioral targeting to influence swing voters. That is really scary stuff. The infrastructure is already there and people don't necessarily realize that that is what actually ha is happening. That is what this internet-enabled future has actually brought us as a side effect of all the extra cool things we get to do. Um, so as digital marketers, our response is primarily in education. Teach people how this stuff works and make them aware of the dangers that it poses and not just the cool stuff that comes with it. And I suppose it doesn't come naturally to digital marketers because we profit from it, you know? Don't bite the hand that feeds you while I'm chewing away at the hand that feeds me. And it might actually lash back at me at some stage, but I feel I have a sort of civic duty. As a lot of other people, a lot of other SEOs and people in the industry share this with me. They have a sort of civic duty that, yes, it's cool, we're making a living out of this, but there are side effects of this technology that endanger the, the, the basic principles of a free, open, democratic society that we don't necessarily want to ignore. From, from what you're, all of the stuff you're saying, I, I kind of gather that by, by educating people, especially younger, the younger generation, you're kind of hoping that, that those people would be even more educated about the, the problem of privacy and all of that. And therefore, by consequence, a lot of them will start to rebel against it more and more, right? And that it will hopefully lead to the EU, the US and other countries kind of regulating those big companies that are literally playing with our lives and, 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 and the politics and stuff. So is it, is it kind of what you're getting at? You're hoping that by educating people in, in return, we'll fight against them in, in bigger numbers? That is the, the ideal outcome, you know, through education, you create awareness and from awareness, there will be activism. Um, you know, the, the, the people growing up in, in a native digital environment will become the lawmakers of the future. Um, 
you know, we can't really change the minds of the old established political elites at the moment, but we can make sure that they are replaced in due course with a new political elite which does understand the problem and is aware of the dangers that it poses. It might take a while to get there, but if we don't educate them, we'll never get there. So it is about building up that momentum, building up that awareness, building up that, that grassroots activism, maybe to an extent, help make current politicians aware and make sure that the next generation of politicians will be more empowered and informed to be able to effectively fight against these tides. Um, and you know the companies themselves don't do it for nefarious reasons. Google, I'm pretty sure, isn't setting out to be you know, uh, Empire 2.0. They just want to make money. The thing is, the side effect of them wanting to make money creates this negative atmosphere, this panopticon of surveillance capitalism that is actively eroding our freedoms and empowering political uh, movements to uh, manipulate masses on an industrial scale. So they need to take some responsibility for themselves. You know, the moment people within Google and within Facebook themselves realize that, hey, hang on a second here, what we're doing here can really have some bad impacts in the long term. That's also when we start winning the battle. But they won't necessarily do that unless they get confronted with the negative output again and again and again, because one person piping up can be ignored. 10 people piping up, you just still hit block. If it's a million people shouting at them, then okay, maybe they start to take it seriously. Um, remind me of the, the sentence in their mission statement, a statement that they took off uh, after they went public. Yeah, don't be evil. They, they took that one away. Very subtly left it out of the, their mission statement. Um, That's because telling, I, think, I think they realize, yeah, I think they realize that making profit and being uh, not evil are mutually exclusive. Every profit-making company has to make moral compromises. I make moral compromises myself as a profit-making company, you know. Um, so I fully understand them leaving it out. It's just the public hasn't quite caught on to that yet. Um, for listeners who don't necessarily know exactly how Google works and, and gather our data, can we just run through briefly? the type of information they get from where? Well, the search engine is the obvious bit. Um, and, uh, you know, every time you use a search engine, they know exactly what you search for and they know which website you click on. That's the easy bit, but that's just the beginning of it. Gmail, they know exactly who you're emailing, how often you email those people. They don't necessarily read the emails. They have automated systems that extract topical information from those emails, but they don't actually read your email messages themselves. But just the meta information, who you send those emails to and how often you send those emails to, they have all of that. Then, of course, they're an advertising company. So there's a lot of websites, millions and millions of websites that show advertising powered by Google's double-click ad network. So every time you visit one of those websites, they will know. Every time you read an article on a news website, they know which article you read. Every time you open an email and click through from that email to a website, they know that you've clicked on that. They will follow your movements throughout the web, even when you arrive on websites that don't use Google Advertising because they've placed those cookies in your browser from when they have, when you did visit a website that, that uses Google Advertising, they will follow you around the web. So they know every single website that you visit, every single article that you read, every link that you click on the web. Um, every video that you watch on YouTube, because of course YouTube is owned by Google, um, And then, of course, if you use a browser like Chrome, they'll know everything that you do anyway. And then, of course, the Google account, your login for Google, has all of that information combined in the back end. They follow you around everywhere. Every account that you use that email address with to sign up with, yes, there is almost nothing that they don't know about you, what you do online. Combine that with Android, that tracks everywhere you go, every app that you download, everything in, in your contact lists, Um, everything in your in your messages, you know, where does it stop? I, I would actually challenge you to find something that Google doesn't know about you when it comes to the internet in general. It's That's probably a shorter story. It's scary. So it means that by combining all of this data, they are able to really create profiles. They are really able, as you mentioned in your example before, they're able to know whether or not you are going to vote for Hillary or for Donald. They are able to know whether or not you're on the fence and don't really know which one. You're able, they're able to know everything that they need in order to, to sell your data, to sell your profile to, to advertising companies or co company advertising uh, to you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you think about the way Google is, is showing you results and you're searching for specific sentences should, such as, who should I vote for? something stupid like this, right? 
even if it's an algorithm, right? There's, they have a way, they can choose the pages that are in the top 10 and number one, two, three, four. I mean, there is pages out there that they are showing that could genuinely influence somebody um, oh, absolutely. to do the wrong thing. There's another, I don't know if they fixed that, but there was a sentence that you could search on Google or many, but one of them was, was the Holocaust real? Yes. And the first or second uh, result were actually negationist website saying, yeah, uh, no, it never existed. So Exactly. Can you imagine a teenager wanting to learn about the Holocaust, being exposed to that? You know, did the Holocaust happen? And then the first website is Stormfront. No, it didn't happen, and this is why. Uh, and the people believe these stories, of course, because the, the way they, they present their information seems very uh, convincing. Um, and just ignores the entire source of evidence that the Holocaust did actually happen, left, let alone the bloody eyewitness statements and the Nazis' own uh, very extensive records because they were good bookkeepers of Nazis, you know. And I actually did that search for myself when uh, I first heard about it. And for me to see that search result, uh, the first five results pretty much were all Holocaust denial websites. I, I don't think I've ever been as angry and upset with Google as I was at that moment. And that was only a couple of months ago. I, I have a long, colorful history of arguing with Google, like, you know, don't get short arguing with windmills, really, because it's totally futile. But that was the, the most visceral pain and anger I have ever felt towards Google. And even now, when I just remember that, I feel actually upset about it. Because for me, that was a betrayal of the most painful kind. Google has a responsibility as an internet search engine to show the highest quality results that are, as far as they can determine, factually accurate and represent reality. And they let us down every single day. And to let the world down on a search term that is so important and something we as a species cannot afford to ever forget that for me was just brutal and unacceptable on so many levels. And I think people in Google should lose jobs over this. They should lose bonuses over this. They should lose dividends over this, whatever it makes them feel that pain themselves because they don't actually realize. For them, it's just, you know, oh, a fault in the algorithm. Oh, yes, we'll fix that, but only if there's sufficient PR fallout against it. Totally and utterly unacceptable. As the world's largest search engine, they need to take responsibility of the information that they show. And the failure to do so, especially on such crucial topics, is utterly unforgivable and needs to be rubbed in their face at every fucking chance. I mean, when I meet Googlers at conferences from now on, I've already committed myself to making, to reminding them, however subtle, that they let this shit happen. And the nice guys, you know, John Mueller and Gary Alls, the nice people, the, the public faces of, of, of Google towards the SEO community. But I'll still remind them because I want them to feel bad about this. Not just now, but 10 years from now, I still want them to feel bad about this, that they let this shit happen and didn't fix it until there was sufficient PR negativity against them that they felt forced to fix it. They shouldn't have to wait for some journalist to write an article about it. They need to monitor this shit actively. They've got the money for it. I mean, you talk to themselves, 90 billion revenue. You know, the numbers are obscene, how much profit these people are making. And so little acknowledgement of the responsibility that comes with that power. And that is, you know, for me, that was such a powerful moment that certainly to an extent vindicated my anger with Google I felt over all these years. They are a fallible, flawed monstrosity that we've created with our own active participation in their system. And we now need to take some ownership of that and say to Google, you know what? Yes, you harvest our data. We keep using your search engine tens of thousands of times a day. It's time you, you take up some of that responsibility and stop just looking at profit and start looking at the impact you can have on society. But so this is where I, I, I disagree with you. Not necessarily, I, maybe you didn't express it the right way, but I believe that companies can do both. They can make profit and have strong moral ethics. I mean, basic example would be Patagonia or that kind of other companies I can, I can, I can mention, right? And they must... If they want to survive in the long term, I firmly believe that any company should really make sure that people trust them, trust them for real. And I think Google is going into a very slippery path. Obviously, the path is, is not that you know, slippery yet. But if they don't invest more of their resources into ethical you know, 
into those ethical challenges. If they don't invest more money into making the world a better place the right way, not trying to like take data from anybody and, and, and use that against their will, I, I, I think they're going to be in trouble uh, in, in, the next fu- in, the, in the near future. There is this uh, report, I don't know if you, if you read it, uh, the Edelman report about trust and the state of yeah. trust in the world. And one of the number one thing that make people trust companies is whether they treat their employees right, whether they actually fight for what's right. And it's starting to be more and more important, as we know from the presidential election in the US recently and other things and the fake news and all, people crave for trust, they need to trust people, companies and government and politics. And I think that this is what's happening. If they don't, exactly as you said, if they don't start to cope on, it might bite, uh, bite them back in the ass pretty quickly. I, I hope you're right, but I have a much more cynical view about that. People don't need to trust companies. Companies just need to present themselves as trustworthy. And whether they actually do what they say they do or do it in such a way that it makes a difference is an entirely different aspect. I, I mean, some of the biggest companies in the world that have been around for 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years or more are inherently bastardly companies that do nasty things every single day. But nobody bats an eyelid because it's just background noise, you know. For consumers, consumers want to buy into companies that they think do good things and can be turned away from companies if companies are perceived to be, like you said, untrustworthy. But that's just a PR exercise. We as people don't necessarily want to trust the company. We just want our own worldview to be reinforced. We want our own worldview to be affirmed by the content that we read and the businesses that we engage with every day. and whether or not that worldview is factually accurate is entirely beside the point because it's about our feelings, not about facts. And companies can and do all the time prey on that inherent human weakness where what is true is irrelevant as long as it makes us feel good about ourselves. Google does this. Facebook does this. Every company that you see on TV advertised, every radio advert you hear, they all do this. It's about how you make people feel, not what you actually do in the real world. Um, and we as a species, we just haven't evolved beyond that and don't, don't think we ever will because it's just so inherent in the human condition. Um, I hope that we become more aware of this and awaken to it to a certain extent. But my inherently low opinion of the human race uh, makes me a very cynical person in that regard because, you know, history has a tendency to repeat itself. And we're seeing right here is, is a slightly different repetition of what's happened 70, 80 years ago, which happened uh, 60, 70 years before then, and tends to go in a cycle every, you know, the cycle speeds up a little bit, but every couple of centuries, the same shit happens again, because we forget. We forget as a species, we make the mistakes, there's a little surge of uplift, a positive movement, and then we forget again and go back to the same old mechanisms that we have. The only difference in this particular scenario that, you know, in the last 100, 150 years, technology has caught up with that to speed up the cycle. And, and make companies grow quicker and be able to exert influence in a shorter time frame and also fail quicker as a result. But in the end, the cycle is still the same. We still get fucked as people because we invite to ourselves to be fucked by companies and politics and countries and organizations of all stripes. It's just how the human condition works. Yeah, I wouldn't be that cynical about it. I understand your point of view. Uh, I, I think that because of internet, because of the way internet is, I think there is a good. I think there is a bright future about those companies manipulating people. I think there's going to be good. What stuff about happening. fake news then? How do you explain fake news? If the internet is such a liberating force, why do more and more people believe the Earth is flat? <laughs> that's that's the good question, and I think this is why. I this is why I wouldn't blame people for it because exactly as you said, we are wired a certain way, and and it's in our DNA. And it's not an excuse to say that; it's the truth like billion of years of evolution that led to, to this moment, right? So I don't think you can blame people saying, you know, you should have known better because exactly as you say, it's inherently in our DNA and the way we are. So I think it's up to the companies, to companies to, to, to cope on and, and find mechanism to fight against it. And, and I think we're going to get better about it. We're going to be, those companies, we, we learn how to display the truth instead of fake news and, and it's going to get better. We'll see, but I'm I'm a little bit more optimistic on this. Uh, I think I it's a very new. Right. I think it's a very new problem, and and yes. and therefore it will be fixed. I, I appreciate it. Will. Yes, I I hope you're right. I just I 
don't expect you to be right <laughs> because you know people love there to see those little conspiracy theories that they have to see them confirmed and the internet has enabled that to happen i mean no matter how much science and data and facts you throw at people um, they'll ignore 99.99% of it that they disagree with to focus on the 0.001% that they agree with because it confirms their worldview. Um, everything from climate science to whether or not the earth is round to political viewpoints to how e e economies should work. People ignore what they don't agree with and latch on to what they do agree with because it makes them feel better. And we're, we're not a species that has evolved to think rationally about things. We're evolved to think emotionally about things. And that's always going to be our main Achilles heel. Well, at least we are able to debate about that, which is a good point. That's part of the fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good thing for us, for, for, for a species. Uh, we'll see where it goes. But to get out of this debate, that could be a little bit depressing. Uh, and if you think about it before you go to sleep, you, you tend not to go to sleep uh, at all for the, for the next few hours. What do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 5, 10 years or 20 years? I think too many marketers just keep ticking boxes because that's what they've always done. Um, I think every good marketing effort starts with really understanding who your audience is and genuinely understanding the problems and challenges that your audience faces, which your company, your product, your service can address. I too often have conversations with clients where they don't really understand what the audience is and what the audience wants from them. They just have a product and they're trying to sell that product. Um, whether or not that product fits with what the market wants is almost beside the point. No, it's a product. We need to sell it. There it is. You need to reverse that. Good marketing at its heart is starts with the audience. Always starts with your target audience, with your customers. Who are they, these people? And treat them as people. Don't just call them users or personas, but you know, these are actual people. Understand that they're human beings who want to interact with you, or maybe they don't want to interact with you, who have certain needs and requirements, certain informational needs, certain product needs, whatever it is, to help make their lives easier in whatever way, shape, or form. And you as a marketer have a responsibility to deliver value to those users. Um, and most companies do that the exact other way around, where the incentive is to bring value to the company regardless of what it happens to the user. The customer at the end of that equation is sort of an afterthought that, oh yeah, we have to make sure they don't write negative reviews about us. You know, it has to be just good enough to enable somebody to make a profit off of it. And that, you know, that hopefully will become more and more unacceptable as time goes on, thanks to this transparency movement as well, and companies wanting to do better because the younger generation sort of demands it of the market. Um, so hopefully that, that, that trend will continue where companies will have no choice but to actually think about their customers first. You know, it's such a lame mantra, customers first, but most companies who say that never actually do it. It's just a mantra for them, you know. Um, really putting your customers first is difficult because you have to talk to your customers all the bloody time to think about what they really want, what they need, what are their desires, what are they interested in, what is the actual problem that they're facing, not just, you know, the thing you're trying to sell, but the actual problem that they're facing and how can you as a company help with addressing those problems. And the companies who do that really, really well, you know, people keep referring to Apple, and I sort of get sick of it, but they are true to an extent because the iPhone, when it first arrived on the scene, it wasn't the first feature phone with a touchscreen ever invented, but it was by far the best and it solved a problem that customers didn't realize they had. Basecamp, again, you've, you've interviewed the founder earlier, that too is a prime example of solving a problem people don't necessarily realize they have until you show them the solution. The same with, with Gmail. Now, I, I like pissing on Google every chance I get, but I love Gmail because it solves a problem for me I didn't realize I had until I started using Gmail. That that powerful inbuilt search functionality and the threading of, of conversations, I just take it for granted now. But before that, using email, especially over several years where you end up with a huge uh, archive of tens of thousands of emails, is excruciating. And now I just don't even worry about it anymore because it just takes care of itself. So it's about understanding the actual problems your customers have and then building them the perfect solution that may or may not be innovative as long as it's iterative and actually helps people's lives become better. What are the top three resources you would recommend to digital marketers out there? 
I don't know. I think there's so many different fields in digital marketing. I'm an SEO guy, so I read a lot of SEO blogs, you know, and I don't necessarily recommend digital marketers working in social media, working in, in paid advertising to, to do the same because you'll A, lose the will to live and B, it doesn't actually make you a better digital marketer. <laughs> I think the key is always to find people in your niche that have good opinions and trustworthy opinions and follow them on Twitter or Facebook or whatever profile uh, they prefer. And also to occasionally step out of your comfort zone. Some of the most valuable people that I follow are not necessarily digital marketers, but take some like uh, uh, I followed uh, Thomas Paykal, I think his name is recently. He's a media analyst because I work with a lot of newspaper clients uh, and he has really interesting opinions on the media. Uh, Paul Boerg is a designer, a web designer, and I follow him because he likes to piss all over everything that other people do, including SEOs like myself. And sometimes we need people like that to challenge us and do things differently. So, you know, follow the people in your specific niche that are good and do do great work. Follow people outside of your niche that have good opinions because sometimes you need a fresh perspective. And don't follow hypes. Just, you know, don't just chase after the latest hype phrase, but always look at what your audience is doing and and try to cater to them. That would be my three main tips for marketers. Awesome. Well, Barry, you've been a pleasure to talk to, and I'm going to lose sleep over what we just discussed for the next two weeks, but that's what usually happens when I talk to you. So once again, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also... Uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends, your colleagues, or whoever might like it. And also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast. Because if you leave us a five-star review, it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again, and au revoir. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.